This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 38. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 38, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. I have a fantastic guest for you on today, Mr. Daniel Cantor, who's a friend of mine that I made through the Potluck Audio Conference. No surprise there. Make a lot of friends at the Potluck Audio Conference. Daniel is an assistant professor over at Berkeley College in Boston. So we're back in Boston as we were with uh, Sean McLaughlin. So Daniel's going to be on. He is a total badass. And I tell you, when you read his bio, it makes it makes me feel this way. I don't know if it'll make you feel this way, but it makes me feel as if I am uh, standing still and that I haven't done a whole lot lately because he does a lot of work with artists from around the world, uh, doing a lot of global hip-hop type work. He does some corporate audio. He's done some multimedia audio in the past. He's, I tell you, he's just kind of all over the place. And I'm not going to read his, his resume or his bio to you because I'm going to put it up on the website. Yeah, make sure you, you you give that a thorough read over and, and just kind of shake your head and go, what have I been doing with my life? I got to pick up the pace. So yeah, anyways, so Daniel's coming up shortly and we, we are actually starting a new section on the website starting today. We're going to do WCA bonus content because as you would imagine with each of these recording folks that we speak to, there's always like extra bits and pieces that I want to incorporate, but that just don't seem to fit into the the regular content without overblowing all the, the pages. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a, a dedicated page for bonus content. And this will be, uh, you know, whether it's uh, YouTube videos or pictures of people's studios or URLs to... Uh, you know, things that uh, are associated with that recording person that they maybe they've mentioned, all kinds of stuff. We're just going to load it up and break it up into uh, individual people. And we'll see if we can, maybe we can get some, uh, some uh, retroactive content from all of our previous guests. And uh, maybe it's a new video from uh, one of the artists on Andrew Sheps's label, or maybe it's a video about Michael Beinhorn talking about uh, his book at some book reading or book signing, you know, anything really. So, hey, we're approaching a couple milestones here, or we've already actually hit one milestone. Last month in the month of August, we actually have had the most listeners in a month ever. We almost hit 16,000 downloads for the month, which is absolutely insane to me just to think. And then the other milestone that we're approaching very rapidly, and I think you all are going to help us cross this this line this month, is the 100,000 downloads for the year. And we are also coming up on the birthday of the podcast because the date of the first podcast was on September 15th of 2014. Wow, I'm actually kind of, my eyes are growing in amazement as I read that that information. Uh, wow, almost one year ago, I started this podcast. And uh, we're about to hit the 100,000 download mark. Amazing. So. Thank you all for being a part of that. We'll uh, we'll definitely have a little, uh, I don't know, have a little celebration about that. So that's it. Things are going well. We're uh, we're growing by leaps and bounds, and uh, 
we just continue to get some fantastic people on. And, and I know just a, just a note to say to many of you, Oh, I'm getting a ton of email and Twitter messages and Facebook messages about different people to have on. And if I don't answer you, don't take offense to it. I am just inundated with a lot of um, messages from all of you and I appreciate it. And I am definitely reading through them and I'm checking people out and one by one, the guests are coming coming through, and sometimes there's scheduling issues, of course, because, you know, people are working. People are busy. So uh, I'll do my best. If you don't get a reply from me, please don't take offense to it. Just know that uh, it got to me because uh, all the message, messages are getting out. So that's it. Uh, let's get on with our call here with Mr. Daniel Cantor here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So welcome to the podcast, man. It's it's really great to see you and and. I did miss you at potluck, since there was no potluck yeah, this I was, year. I was sad about that. Well, hopefully, uh, Craig will pull the pull the the magic show together for next year. Yeah, it was a blast last year, and I hope hope Craig's good. Yeah, I, I believe he is. Uh, as I said to Sean, we'll have him on the show and and check in with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to tell you, man, I, I I read your bio and I read the one at Notable dot com. Mm-hmm. And all I could say was, and, I, and I've already said it in the opening lines of the show, is that I read it and I felt not inadequate, but I felt lazy. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, what have I been doing? And I reached that conclusion because I know that you're a family guy and you have kids and yet you have quite a large and varied bio. Uh, and background. It's not just, yes, you worked at a studio and you worked with a bunch of rock and roll acts. You you get around to corporate audio, hip hop, and not just hip hip hop, but global. I can Is global hip hop a word? It absolutely is. Yep. You seem to work on documentaries. You seem to you write, you play drums, um, you sell gear. You do a lot of stuff. The, the selling is kind of uh, a side thing, you know, but sometimes that's to support students having you know good stuff in fact just i just reached out to a bunch of manufacturers and and good people at stores to say hey i've got a bunch of new students this semester they need some serious basics and what's available in the world just walking into um, retail store x is not doable for them as students and and i and i'd like to see you know, students really owning their own stuff and getting to work with, with tools that are great and available and not, you know, furthering their school debt <laughs> to do it, you know? So yeah, that, that, that's meaningful to me. And then, you know, I think, you know, as a nerd who likes to try out gear, um, there are pieces that you find you love and there are pieces that, you know, didn't do exactly what you hoped they were going to do and you want to move them in and out. So some of it's just the flow of having a recording studio, I think. Obviously, you spend some time, you know, testing out not only stuff you sell, but stuff you are interested in on the side anyway. So yeah, yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that that selling thing? How did you get into that? It mostly came from just being passionate about certain pieces of gear and then finding out who made it and then talking to them about it and then them saying, hey, well, you know, our our best advocacy for our gear is someone who's enthusiastic about it and knows about it could we put some extra pieces at your studio and would you be okay with you know demoing it occasionally or sharing your knowledge about it with people and that's kind of an easy 
an easy way to get into it. It, it was, yeah. yeah, it's not like I'm chasing manufacturers or anything like that. It's mostly, you know, we, you know, we go to AES or we go to one of those events where there they are. The person who made something you love is standing there and you get to start talking with them and the, you know, just the passion of, of wanting to use something and loving it. They're like, well, would you please tell people about our stuff? And, and, and I think word of mouth is, is the name of the game for our entire industry, you know? Mm-hmm having a studio or or being a producer is all based on word of mouth. It's not, you know, I, I pretty much have done no marketing in, in my world. I don't I don't put advertisements up anywhere. My best ability to keep my career going is to have people go, "Hey, check out this record." Or I had a great experience working with him. I loved working at his studio. You should go check him out and uh, and I think initially it came from being on tour and people liking our record and wondering where we did it and then telling them that I did it and then them saying, oh, well, could you help me with mine? So I think that organic process is the same thing for whether it's gear or studio or production or playing drums on somebody's recording, you know. Let's step back just a bit into that conversation with gear manufacturers mm-hmm. because I think, you know, some p- people are going to hear this and they're going to say, ooh, I should do that. I should, I should go talk to gear manufacturers and see if I can hustle some free gear or loaner gear, how do you think a manufacturer differentiates between somebody who could really make an impact on their sales in the long term and somebody who just wants to get some free stuff? That's a good question. I mean, there's definitely, there have been companies who I have loved their stuff and told them I loved it. And they keep a very strong wall between me becoming someone who sells their stuff and me being just a customer. And, I, and and obviously that that's wise. They don't want to deal with hundreds and hundreds of people. They would much rather deal with a smaller amount of outlets, I'm sure, and, and and people who are good at it and people they trust. Like I had a great drummer in here the other day playing on a track, and he was asking me about endorsements. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a similar thing, you know, when a manufacturer or a, a company that makes a piece of gear or, or an instrument thinks that you're going to provide visibility value, wisdom about their stuff, then they're going to say, hey, that's a good person to get our stuff to. And maybe at a discount or, you know, it's not like manufacturers are running around throwing gear at me. It's more like they go, oh, you use that on that record and it sounds awesome and that's why we make it like that and you clearly get that. Oh, and you're going to be going to this event? Is it okay if, you know, it's it's not um, it's not me chasing after stuff so much as just being passionate about it and and people getting excited about it too. Very uh, interesting. It it is it is helpful. I mean, you know, also the, there's a, the <clears throat> academic side of that too. You know, as a as a teacher, there's an interesting world there where as a teacher or a student, there are academic discounts that people don't even think to ask about. I've I've students who who are like I really want X Y and Z and I'm like, "Well, have you approached them as a student and said, "Hey, I'm a student. Are there academic discounts?" And it's never occurred to them. And a lot of times those academic discounts are like 50% off. Oh, yeah. There's definitely, I mean, I just, um, uh, there's another teacher and I in the, in the MP&E department at Berkeley, and we just put together lists of stuff for our students because we really want them to have access to great stuff and not pay through the nose for it. And there are manufacturers, um, software companies that are really about not just hawking gear, but getting tools into the hands of people who are going to be long-term users, mm-hmm. which I, you know, I love companies like that. 
there there's some some retailers like that too. It's harder to find the retailers who are that supportive and that loving and that but you know, there are there are audio retailers out there that help you find gear and will let you test stuff and it's not it's not just about we have a big flashy marketing department and we want you to buy stuff at the price that it comes in at. So so you mentioned Berkeley. You are an assistant professor at Berkeley currently. Yeah, in two departments. I'm in the songwriting department and the music production and engineering department. You know, I think of them as kind of sister departments. They're not always uh, that aligned, but they're getting more and more aligned, which is great because obviously you can't produce something unless you've got a great song. Mm-hmm. And trying to, you know, it's it's just a, a, a hand-in-hand kind of situation. So it's really great to kind of align them. And I feel like I'm kind of sitting right between the two departments, which is fun. You know, I've always uh, known or associated Berkeley College of Music as purely a, a performance and uh, a performance school, and I don't always equate it to recording. So is the recording thing, how long has that been around for Berkeley, first um, of all? I don't have the exact years. Uh, I I actually was a student in that department in the late 80s. So I, I think they started somewhere in the 80s, but I'm, I'm talking off the top of my head right now. And there were some great people starting it, Don Palouse, Wayne Wadhams, some people who really knew what they were doing, and it has grown and exploded. You know, the school was uh, taken over by, um, is now being run by a, a really great leader who has changed the school demonstrably. In fact, we just got a new building on Mass Ave that has um, a bunch of great studios in it. Um, Walter Stork designed beautiful rooms. And before that, they there were good studios and they were well-equipped, but they were not purpose-built from the ground up. They mm-hmm. were like ensemble rooms that got converted very, um, uh, you know, they tried really hard to make those into purpose-built rooms, but it, it's it's a struggle when you do that, when you've got pre-existing structures. Um, and then this building, which is glorious, it's at 160 Mass Ave, um, has three really big, beautiful studios, uh, and they're maintaining their large console, you know, great, content um and beautiful recording spaces so uh it's a real step up and it's that's just happened in the in the past year do you you feel like um schools these days should be teaching on large format consoles or should they be driving everything into the world of the box as we call it i love both of them i think they're both crucial it would be very sad if large console large studio thing just became a dinosaur that would that would not make me very happy. At the same time, I think you really have to be somewhat vocational about your teaching and make kids capable of really making great recordings with their laptops. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a real-world aspect of it, which clearly a lot of work is done in the box and at home or in limited situations. And you can you know, have a career in that world that's not about the huge studio thing. But I think it would... You know, if if you're really going to hold up a school as one that trains uh, the cream of the crop, then I think you have to have the big, the big situation too, and you have to, and you have to have rooms that sound great too. To teach, to teach kids about trying to mix in headphones, I think is a a problem. Yeah, yeah, I, I it's, think it it can be a challenge. That's for sure. Yeah, and I and I think it's not as much fun. I mean, I mean, one of the reasons we got into this, or at least I, I know that I did, is because 
sitting in front of a couple of speakers in a room that's decent, you know, changed my life when I was young. And hearing live music in front of great musicians, you know, made my heart pound and made me want to do things with my life. Those were the motivators that made me persevere and and want to do all kinds of gigs. To me, it comes back to a couple of speakers in a room and seeing how it translates and and being able to make that work. What's important for a student to learn now? Like if you if you can sit down with a student and counsel them and say, look, this is where we've been. This is where we're at today. This is what you need to do to get yourself up to speed in the next year to two years so that you can be a true badass. What's important? Ears, training your ears so you can know what's going on. I think, I think that it all comes down to that. I think, you know, even the process that I went through haphazardly early on, um, I think proved great for me, which was I was playing drums on people's recordings. I was going to studios. I was really obsessive about tuning my drums. So they were great sounding and I'd play my heart out. And then I'd go to the other side of the glass and I'd be like, why does my snare drum sound like that when it sounded really nice in the other room? And I'd work so hard to get it there. And I, I would be kind of crushed and indignant and curious, like what happened? What what was the translation process that, you know, and then I'd go, then actually at, at that point, uh, there were still audiophile stores mm-hmm. around, which, you know, there still are. Uh, there was one in New York that uh, I made friends with the, the owner called The Listening Room. And they had glorious speakers and vinyl recordings of fantastic music. And they would let me hang out and listen. And so my my training really came from just listening and loving to listen to records and, and going, how did they get that? What's, you know, at that point it was, it was much harder to get information. You were looking at the back of liner notes and trying to figure out how they did stuff. And you'd ask people right now, it's amazing how much information is out. I mean, like your podcast is a valuable resource, but like there is just a plethora of stuff to read, listen to watch, you know, there's a lot of junk on the web too, but there is a lot of great material and great books, tons of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like, you know, someone who's self-motivated can start training themselves and training their ears with decent decent monitors, a limited laptop setup. Um, you know, obviously I think they need to learn, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the books I teach out of actually is Understanding Audio. It's written by a friend of mine at Berkeley. And it's a really good, solid, basic treatise in everything you need to know about, like, what's in a recording studio? How does digital audio work? You know, basics to acoustics. There's enough stuff in there that if you really devour the book, you can actually read it a few times and get more out of it each time you read it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for, you know, for, for people who are like interning at my studio, it's, it's something I gladly hand them. And I feel like it's going to get them started thinking about, all the issues they need to know. My general frustration with kids who are starting to learn audio is they think if they've got a laptop and they learn five or six things, they've got everything down. And that uh, can lead them into a box. It can uh, you know, result in overcompressed audio or distortion on a lot of things and resolving things badly and not being conscious of simple things like clocking or anything that is going to get your audio to be clean and clear. Like 
when I start kids working on stuff, I, uh, I talk, tell them about the Hippocratic Oath, you know, the doctor oath that says, I will do no harm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And uh, they're all excited about like, oh, which microphone do I choose? And I'm like, eh, let's talk about if you've got a good performance and how you can get that in and not mess it up, not like let's follow some cookie cutter recipe for that's how you get things. There's, there's a little too much, you know, gear lust and focus on, well, if that's who, if Bob uses that, then I got to use that. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's way too much of that going on. And I think, you know, actually it's, it's, I I tend to be nonlinear as you can tell, but one of the, the charms of the, the fact that I'm in those two different departments at Berkeley, you know, mm-hmm. I've got the songwriters who are all about trying to express themselves and make something that you're going to remember. And then I've got the engineers who are much more focused on the technical and sometimes gear lusty, as, as, as I would say. And trying to get both of those groups of students to be excited about the other one to kind of integrate it, like, is it, it, <laughs> is really a fun challenge. <laughs> you know, like, if, like, trying to convince uh, an engineering major that, you know, unless the song is good, it doesn't matter what microphone you used. You know, it doesn't, it, it, unless there was emotion being output by that vocalist, it really doesn't matter if it was a 57. Um, not that I have any problem with 57s. So I love them. They're great for a lot of things. So I just mean like a, a more inexpensive mic. You know, if you've got someone putting out all their energy and being focused and sincere, then you know, you've captured something that people are going to love. And, and the other side of that is that with the songwriters, it's like, well, c- could you maybe not distort the input when you're recording that demo of yours? Because that's making us feel bad. Right. It's <laughs> taking that good feeling song and shooting it in the foot. Right. <laughs> right. But yeah, I, I think there's a lot of basics stuff that, that um, I want students to understand. Um, one of them that I'm very into is is just measuring their rooms and figuring out how bad their monitoring system or the room is to their monitoring system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think I have to really stand up on the desk and scream that the room can change their monitors more than changing monitors, you know? That's a good point. And, and I feel like the, that they're like, huh? I'm like, if you move your monitor a foot in any direction, it changes the sound of your monitor as much as, if not more sometimes, than changing the monitor to a different brand. So I'll give my my little pitch about Sonarworks here shortly mm. because you've, you've provided an excellent opportunity to talk about something I'm, I'm super passionate about with, with, uh, with this topic. So tell me, what are your ways of, of teaching them about this topic of, of the room, the monitors, the whole the whole package there. One is to you know be sitting in a room with some speakers and turn on a frequency that is clearly excited by a room issue, mm-hmm. and then have them wander around. And actually, sometimes if they have iPhones, I'll get a decibelometer on everybody's phones, and they will actually compare the volume in different places in the room. And we'll have one frequency, but in different places in the room, they're up by eight decibels or down by 12 decibels or, you know, it's extraordinary. And, and I'm like, well, every room has this capability. And if you're not figuring out where you're listening and how you're listening and what 
kind of response you're getting, you're you're just shooting yourself in the foot right off the, the get-go. The other one is, um, I'll say, you know, if, if you're going to record drums, which we both are passionate about, if mm-hmm. um, the bass drum is a big, low frequency, it's a huge wave. And in order to reproduce something like an 80-cycle or 100-cycle wave, you are limited by the room, more than by the mic choice. So literally, if I take my bass drum with a stick, like I'm in a marching band, and I wander around the room hitting it, you can go, oh, it's dead here. Oh, it's resonant here. Oh, it sounds like the bass drum. I know it should be here. We've all had the experience of going to a club, setting up our drums, and being like, that sounds like I'm playing in a like a cardboard box. There's no there's no resonance. There's no fatness. And then you don't change the tuning of the drums. You bring them to another place, and you're like, oh, my God, it's glorious in here. So just within a room, there are places that a bass drum is going to work or not work. And it's not always the center pretty stuff where the platform was built. Hope, mm-hmm. Hopefully it is. But I, I've walked into rooms where you know the assumption was, let's do drums there. Mm-hmm. In, in one place in the room, and I'll hit my bass drum there and be like, mm, let me try some other places. Let's step back inside the control room for a second. Mm-hmm. How do you get them to resolve these issues that may exist? Because we all know that students are 9.9 times out of 10 in a acoustically challenged situation right. for monitoring. Right. and Which drives a lot of them into headphones. Yeah. Yep. Um, and... Um, yeah, I'm actually the, the one thing I've been holding out on is buying a pair of in-ear monitors. Mm-hmm. I've been kind of uh, looking at different brands and and thinking about getting something because I've heard from some engineer buddies that they like that better than the standard headphones. And um, so I've been looking into. Do you do you use those? Or are you? I've never used those. Um, I'm I'm curious if that's going to improve things or not. But I like the idea that you're you've got a multi-driver system that's in your ear canal that's shaped for your ear canal but i you know until i try it I'll, I'll let you know you know obviously surrounding yourself with uh tools you trust is got to be a big part of it and mm-hmm. and and but you know the the very first thing is like i i don't start in the control room for that situation i start with the bass drum in the room and go wait it doesn't sound like it blossoms i don't feel that warmth from that bass drum and that's going to be the one that is most affected by room modes Mm-hmm. And so I can, you know, I can think about what is absorbent or, or um, I want to say kind of balanced stereo-wise for high-end things by turning around in a room, but I can't control that low-frequency thing unless I'm actually playing the room with my bass drum, I think. So I, I definitely start at the source there. Then in the control room... Reference monitoring is is absolutely the key for me. It's like you need to have a set of recordings that you know, and anytime you go anywhere, you can put those on and go, oh, wow, why does that hi-hat sound more aggressive? I mean, even on a more basic level, you need to be able to put up that recording and go, hey, your monitors are switched left and right, or hey, <laughs> I've got a phase problem. I mean, I've gone to professional studios and somebody was screwing around with an amplifier just before I got there and they're wrong. You know, I, yeah. I, I went to an extremely expensive studio in New York that I won't mention, but ha- had so much low end hype that when I was recording a, a hi-hat track and I had the drummer just play his hi-hat into a 
451, which is a, a bright, toppy microphone, the whole thing was like, dush, dush, dush. I was like, no, just play the hi-hat. And he hit it again. Dush, dush, dush. I was like, let me come in there. And I went into the room and he played it again. It was like, tss, tss, tss. I was like, holy crap. So I went what back. What is going on? Yeah, I was like, well, so the, the whole low end had been hyped for, you know, clients who wanted that and made me kind of ignore that while I was tracking and and pretend I I didn't hear all that because I knew it was, you know, I put in one of my mixes at that point and went, oh, it's the room, it's the monitoring. Mm-hmm. Um, so starting with recordings that you know you can put in, whether it be for headphones or for monitors and listening and going, oh, yeah, that's, I know what's going on here. Oh, that's different. That low end is scooped off or hyped in this frequency or... My imaging is weird. Why is that? You know, like knowing something that you can come back to and play again and go, oh, is is one of the keys, I think. Um, are, are you familiar with Sonarworks? No. This is a company that makes a, a two, two pieces of software that work uh, in tandem. So it, it's, there's a, a nice uh, graphic user interface that you, you put the software in your computer, you take a measurement mic, like the one that they sell or one that you can supply yourself. Mm-hmm. And it goes through sign sweeps and little blips and blops. And it, it helps you come up with a read on your room. And it, it can calculate the distance between your monitors, the, calculate the distance from you, know, you to your monitors. And then it can also find the, you know, what is the frequency readout of your room? And once it does that, it comes up with a correction that, then is inserted into a plugin that sits on the back end of, say, your Pro Tools session, for example, that you monitor through it. You don't print through it, but sure. you just put it on the back end. And I've had some great success with it. Uh, I'm very pleased with it. Uh, at first, I was a little like, mm, I don't know about this. And after several you know, shootings of the room and test mixes and mixes to clients, I was like, oh my God, this is... This is it. I love this. That's great. There, there. I've tried a few things like that, and I have done those type of tweaks to my room. Yeah, in a in a more permanent way, and not in a kind of software driven kind of way. But I've used uh, the Arc system. I've heard about yeah, which which I think is based on uh, the technology that is also found in a lot of like modern day receivers. There, Pioneer and Ankyo and a bunch of other people are using a system that does it for stereos. First time I heard about this, I was at, um, I went to the Metal Alliance um, seminar in, in New York and it was totally a blast and a bunch of my heroes were there and I was like a, a kid in a toy store. Um, but uh, Frank Filippetti was demoing this uh, multi-channel system that could measure and then it was an actual physical interface. Um, and the software that that was, and, and they stopped making it. It was it was too expensive, and it was there weren't that many people buying it. But the people who made the software went and sold it to a, f- a number of people, and some of it's just like in uh, home stereo stuff now. Uh, it's called the Odyssey system. Okay, um, you know he was talking about you know going to Carly Simon's house in the Hamptons, I think, and setting up a room and mixing for her there. And he said I, he couldn't have done it if he didn't have that software to adjust the room for him because he couldn't make heads or tails of the room otherwise. And so I think yeah. that that's going to be a part and parcel of our, our moving forward. But, mm-hmm. I, but I think that that has to happen after you make your room 
the best it can be. Yeah, it's not to be a complete substitute for doing a little bit of work with acoustic treatments and, yeah. you know, trying to clean up the room, but it definitely... I see it as, I mean, it, you already see it in, in systems from the, from the major manufacturers. Yeah. I think there's uh, KRK has an, I think it's the Ergo system and, G, and JBL are, and the Genelec. arc system. And yeah. So I have a pair of the gentle X that self measures the, the thing that I learned by doing it a bunch. And I also use, um, fuzz measure. Fuzz measure is a great tool for doing room measurement and doing, um, decay plots. So you can see what's resonating in a room. You know, I've also used um, SpectraFoo to do um, trans oh, yeah. transfer functions. So I would much rather use those tools on the front end and go, okay, what am I dealing with here? What's wrong with my room? Can I fix it acoustically and get the lion's share of the process done by being smart about my acoustics and then getting the last little parts of it with the adjustments? Now, um, so for a little while I was really, I mean, I have a funny shaped room. I have a vaulted ceiling, uh, uh, turn of the last century house, like 1895. I opened up the ceiling in my third floor where my control room is and it goes to a peak. And, you know, I put tube traps in the top of the ridge. I have got, um, real traps around the edges of the room where the floor meets the, the walls. I, I've done a bunch of work to it, but until I started actually like looking at the way the room behaves and measuring it and then moving a speaker or moving an absorber, I felt like I was partially blind. Just the experience of putting up the a transfer function. So in real time, anything you do to the room, you see the change in the frequencies. That was mind-blowing to me. I mean, like for years I, I was, you know, I grew up in the world of, you know, audiophile people when I was in high school and they were tweaking rooms and there were guys who were really good at it and guys who weren't, but there was no measurement going on. It was all like talented ear people going, yeah, we need, we need some low frequency. We've got low frequency build up over there. We're going to, you know, and they could look at rooms and they would know stuff. There's, there's still some people around like that, but with the measurement tools, it was amazing to be able to look at it and then move an absorber and go, look, wow, the mid range came right up when I, when I move this panel. So tell me what the software is that you use to do that. Um, so that was SpectraFoo and the transfer function. But you can do it in Smart. You can do it, I think you can do it in Room EQ Wizard. And that's a great one for people to know about because it is free. Yep. It's a, it's a little less pretty in terms of the GUI, but it, free, you can't argue with free. And, and, and for my students who have never taken a look at their rooms... You know, uh, it's a great way to get started. And then if you use what you're, d does the program you're talking about give you detailed analysis of what it's doing? Yeah, it'll show you, here's what your EQ of your room looks like before we've done anything. Uh-huh. And then here's the changes we're making, which, you know, is, it's a mirrored result. And here, here now is the flat response. And if you're, if you listen to some like reference music, through it uh -huh. and turn it on and off. Uh -huh. You're like, oh my God, how did I ever live without that? Right. But wait, the, so a lot of these companies that do that, um, don't, they, they, they tell you they're doing something, they show you what they're doing, and then they apply that graphically to what was there first, but they don't actually measure again. Hmm. So, um, you're assuming that, that whatever you've done to it is having the effect 
of neutralizing whatever, but you're not actually measuring again. So I, so I've been, the way I've been doing it more recently is to actually, so for one, like with, with Genelex, um, who make a very potent set of speakers that do this. I've been, I've been using the, um, uh, 8260s. Hmm. It's an amazing self analyzing, doing it for you kind of system. I wanted to go in and change more stuff. And they give you some graphic ability to go do that. And you, you can actually type in numbers. They don't give you quite as many EQ points as I would like, not as many bands. So what I found myself doing was wanting to make those choices myself and get a, a digital interface that I didn't hear the EQ and making those choices to please myself. And, I, and so I think there's a really interesting balance when you get it right where you've got analytically, you've tried to flatten it out. But also when you hear the music you love, you still get that like emotional response. And so usually I know when I'm tweaking the room, when I listen to a, a song that I've always loved, I'll get that emotional response again. I'll get, I'll get that spine tingling. Ooh, yeah. And I, and I'll hear something I didn't necessarily hear before, or I'll, you know, it'll just bring me back to a time when I first heard the song or whatever. So there's a balance between I'm going to fix everything and how does it make me feel? And can I work in this environment? But also with some of these systems, especially with sonar works, I've discovered that, you know, different placements are yielding different results and different placements of the microphone or different placements of speakers no different placements of placement of the speakers oh yeah it's, in I, the room is huge moving speakers is huge i think sweet spots in rooms for speakers is like getting new speakers and 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 i've measured it i mean when if you measure it well um and you look at the plots you'll be like oh my god there's a dip there that's eight or ten db at a frequency you don't want to dip at you know or where the crossover is working for that speaker doesn't work in that room so a weak spot in the room might trigger a weak spot or not a weak spot, but, it, but the fault of that speaker, you know? So, uh, I think measurement is crucial, you know, even for newbies, I think being able to like, look at, you know, the decay plots to look at the frequency response, move something six inches, you know, and get the, the, that basic relationship between you and the speakers. It's, it's the whole game, I think. Yeah, it's kind of, if you don't do that, you're kind of like driving a car that is like frosted over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and you could relate to or, that. Or, you, dra- or dragging an anchor or something. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, there's, there's something really difficult. I mean, it, it's so much more fun to be in a room where you actually agree with what is coming back to you. Yeah, but, and even if you're a newbie, if you can hear what's going on, I think as your mind is, as all the neurons are connecting, as the knowledge comes in, if you can hear what's going on, it makes it so much easier than if you're being like, well, I think I'm hearing this, but as it turns out, you're not. You're hearing the room effect, Yeah. Uh, you know, phase cancel or do whatever to the audio. Our perception is active. If you want to hear more hi-hat, you absolutely can without touching a knob. You're, you can tell your brain to go, I want to hear more of that aggressive frequency. I mean, I, we've all had the experience of reaching for a knob, turning it, and going, oh, yeah, that's better. And then realize, oh, wait, I'm touching the wrong, I got the wrong knob. knob. <laughs> so we're, we're, you know, we're vulnerable. We're, we're very human when it comes to perception. And 
Um, and I, I always tell my students, we're volume stupid. <laughs> you know, we're, we're just, we're like, oh, that's 2DV louder. I like it. You know, we're, we're really easily swayed by things that make it hard for us to do our job. It's very hard to step back and see the forest for the trees for, for, we go, we go in and out and being able to recognize that I think is crucial to be able to say, I'm just not, I'm too in, in it right now. I got to pull out. Mm -hmm. I got to, I got to, I got to step back. Yeah. Walk around. The, I got to walk around the block and come back. So many kids listen for too long in headphones at loud volumes and their high end is going down and down and down or their volume perception is being injured. Uh, you know, that, that's another thing that I, I definitely am passionate about when I'm, when I meet students, I had a, I had a very early experience when I was playing drums at a gig and one of my earplugs popped out and I had to, um, I played the rest of this very loud rock set with one earplug in and one earplug out. And Ouch. I, and I got off stage because the, the plug dropped through a rafters down into like you know, someplace I couldn't grab it. And I got off and I pulled out the other one. And the difference in my hearing was like two to one. It was so dramatically horrible. I was, you know, I had like a little anxiety attack. I called a, a doctor friend immediately and he was like, yep, uh-huh. You had a threshold drop, probably listening at 110 decibels for half hour with one ear and, you know, 90 with the other or 85. And one ear went way down and it will, won't return for a few hours. Hopefully it will return. And every time you listen to really loud music, you're doing that. I was like, every time. He's like, yeah, your ears compensate in stereo. Like they both come down evenly. So you don't know you're going through that. And so, you know, imagine ill-trained kids cranking up in obnoxious earbuds, slamming their ears and their, their hearing going down and down and their high end getting curved off and then making all kinds of good decisions. And then coming back at that recording the next day and being like, oh my God, it's going to take my head off. So, you know, even our human perception changes at, at such an intense level that if they're not respectful of their hearing, they're going to make horrible decisions too. You know, I like making, do, working on mixes or making mix changes in, in the morning time. Mm -hmm. When you're when fresh. I'm, when I'm fresh. Uh-huh. So. Yeah. Hey, uh, so I, I want to address some other things, uh, and I know that you don't have all the time in the world, so you do you do a wide variety of things, and, and your bio will will be on the website. You do a lot of different kinds of music. You do a lot of different types of audio work. Mm -hmm. What I'm curious about, because you, you strike me as one who has their shit together. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I laugh because one of my interns was, was being very candid with me and, and saying, you know, he's a new songwriter. He's coming out with a record soon and he feels like he's faking it. And I, and I was like, dude, I've been at this for a really long time. I still feel like I'm faking it. There's a certain impost, imposter complex that, uh, you know, rings true of the neurotic individual that I think, you know, we all face. So I don't feel like I've accomplished that much or done that much. I still feel like I'm reaching for that next thing and want to get that next thing under my belt and... I'll always feel like, you know, one more thing, I'll get it better, you know? So, yeah, there's never a sense of like, oh, yeah, I've done it at all, at all. Well, I, so you're, you're saying it's not as calculated. 
No, definitely as, not. As, as, I'm, as I'm making it out no. to be. I mean, the perseverance is calculated. I think that's, that's a big part of it, I think. Yeah, okay. All right. I get that. Well, tell me this. W- yeah. What have you learned? We always talk about money and, and finances and business on this show. What have you learned over the years of how to deal with all of that? How do you deal with your business, with Daniel Cantor, Inc., if, mm. if, if, if I may? Well, yeah, Notable Productions. That is, that's the thing I've been calling it for a long time. See, there you go. There, yeah. you, you... So, um, yeah, but if you, if you speak it differently, it's not able productions or no table productions, depending on how skinny things are. <laughs> um, the, um, you know, I always knew I wanted to be recording music. And I had a few early experiences where somebody was willing to pay a lot of money for something. And I was kind of like, what, really? There was a, you know, when I was coming up and starting to be an independent engineer, um, there was a lot of multimedia stuff going on. And especially around the Boston area, that was, you know, computer companies were just exploding, uh, leading edge and... Uh, Microsoft and and Oracle and all the all these different companies were were kind of like percolating and there was a computer museum and there was all this stuff going on that was, you know, a lot of the people who worked at those multimedia places wanted music in their productions or in their CD-ROMs and things like that or in their, you know, in inside corporate videos and and all that but they they wanted and they wanted their materials to be you know, hipper and have some vitality to them. So I suddenly realized there were a lot of people who wanted that and they were willing to pay properly for music work in a situation where musicians are just like they are now. If they don't have a deal and they're trying to be independent, they can't spend a lot of money. They just don't have it to spend. So I started balancing out my life with, you know, working on, the virtual guitar, the, a video game. I, I wrote music for Microsoft's release of X software. I wrote, wrote music for um, an IBM PC that, you know, when you got the computer, you heard the music when you put in the CD-ROM kind of thing. You know, like, so those gigs were helping me pay for all of the music life that I was having, which would be like, you know, meeting some fantastic drummer from Mali who really didn't have a nickel and had just moved here and was trying to hold on, but was a brilliant musician and we needed to make a record. So I was kind of balancing the two worlds and I was conscious of going, okay, I need to have some bread making gigs and I need to do some things that make my soul happy. You know, whether it was albums I was making for myself or, you know, writing music for choreographers who were doing cool you know dance work that was fun so there was always i was always trying to strike a balance between the two and i knew that i couldn't keep doing it unless i was putting some bread on the table i was lucky i did i did one gig that was at a computer museum in boston that everyone who did multimedia for a while would bring their kids to this museum Mm -hmm. and my you know logo of my company was there and i got tons of calls, you know, basically it was, a, it was a cute little thing that said, you know, how do you make music with computers? And it was a, it was like a Mac plus that's how old this was. Um, and it was an octopad and a keyboard and you could pick the style of music you wanted to play. And you, and basically we had filtered the notes on the keyboard. So even if you didn't know how to play music, 
only the notes that were in the key at the time would be played. <laughs> so you sounded great, even if you couldn't play. And your drumming on the octopad was quantized. So it basically made anybody who wanted to play along to whatever sound like they were doing something, you know, cool. And that, that, that drew a lot of attention. So that's when I went from renting houses with tons of musicians to actually buying a house and, and building a studio around it. So, and the other thing I want to say is that buying a lot of gear up front is a bad idea. Okay. For, I, I think that, you know, and I think Craigslist is genius. You know, I, I most, I, I'd say more than half the stuff I buy is used, if not 70%. And so if, if you buy something and you know that you can try it and use it and then turn it around for the same price you paid for it, then you're in a really different situation than if you buy something for something and then you walk out of the store with it, and it's instantly worth half of what you paid for it. That's just bad business, right? So for, for the impoverished musician or the up-and-coming engineer, you shouldn't be paying full price for things. You should be paying what you think you could then turn it around for if you really are not that into it. Not that you're going to profit from that, but that you're going to not be injured by it. Interesting. So I, I, a lot of... Um, even with drums, I, I'll tell you, I went to a garage sale, and there was a guy throwing out a 1965 Ludwig bass drum because it had no rims, it had rusty lugs, one broken one, and the reinforcement hoops were coming off, unglued. So it looked ramshackle, but I was looking at it like, that's about two hours of labor. It also had a kind of a nasty cigarette hole, you know, mm -hmm. those early wraps that were white marine pearl that would catch fire easily. Um, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, you know, it wasn't something that a collector would want, but I knew with a little love and a little glue and some clamps and some vinegar to clean up the lugs, it was going to be awesome. And it is. It's, it's a great recording drum. It's not the prettiest drum, but it sounds awesome. So there are ways that musicians can kind of get in and not pay through the nose for things. And I totally applaud them having the engineering to do that. I think. Well, so let's get, let's get to modern times now. Uh, you've, you made some money with with some composition stuff, with some installations, um, video games. Yeah, it's a video, video games. Yeah. Um, what? How do you deal now? Like, uh, what's your economic philosophy now? There's still a balance of art to commerce. Okay. I've got I've got two kids, and um, although my my wife is just about to start a new career, she's been in school for a really long time. So, you know, you got to keep your eye on keeping everybody cool. But I didn't start teaching until just a couple of years ago. That didn't come about because it was monetarily beneficial. It came about because I realized a friend of mine said, you, ha you have so many interns at your studio and you're teaching them anyway. You, you should get paid you for it. You should get paid for it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> so, you know, the teaching is regular, but it's, it's not massive income. It's also a community to be connected to. So I love that too. There's lots of, and even just the other people who I teach with, there's some brilliant people at, at Berkeley who I love learning from and talking to. And, you know, if, if, if I'm on my break, not talking to a student and, you know, someone like Susan Rogers is at the desk next to me, um, you know, who recorded much of Prince and many people, I, it's, it's a treat for me to just go say hi and, chat and learn from her too. So there's people around me there that I love and care about and think are fun. And I'm, I'm glad Sean's about to join us too. So 
That's really oh yeah, good. yeah, Sean McLaughlin. Yeah, but this balance thing is important. There's a, there's a there's a part of my original motivation to make soulful recordings that have emotion that make people feel things that came out of just listening to stuff. That if I'm not doing that, I I get depressed. I get I, get, I literally don't feel good about life if I'm not either doing some writing or recording music that I'm really passionate about, then if I'm entirely in the corporate world, um, it's, it's not good. There was, a, there was a point early on, about 12 or 15 years ago, where I was doing the corporate thing very intensely and very exclusively, and I wasn't doing as much of my own music. And I literally got my butt kicked in a corporate situation, and it made me go, whoa. Um, so it was essentially this. I was I was um, I was working on a on a video game that involved uh, Aerosmith and and a bunch of other Warner Brothers artists at the time. And a new owner took over the video game company that I was working for. And basically, I was I was writing some of the music that Aerosmith played in the video game. And I was playing with them and making blues tunes and stuff for the game. So I had copyrights, and he basically decided it looked better to the world if my copyrights weren't on the the game. So it didn't wow. look it didn't look like I had written the music. It looked like Aerosmith had written the music. But I, it was in my contract. And so I I was devastated and I said, well, you know, I was being friendly and f- what I thought was fair. I said, look, I know how to get more promotion for the game. We can uh, we could I could write articles for like Mix magazine and tape up and talk about this process we're going through because it's unique. It's, there's nobody doing exactly what we're doing with these old songs and making new versions of them with parts that you can play and all that. This was before Guitar Hero and all that. This, is, this was kind of the prototype game of that sort. It's called the Virtual Guitar. Anyway, so he said, no, I just took over the company. I think we're paying you too much and I don't really care about your copyrights. And, wow. And I was like, uh, mouth open, like, what happened to the nice company I was dealing with that I helped you know, be creative with. And I went to some business people who were wiser than me. And he said, they said, Dan, you know, that's corporate. That's just corporate behavior. Don't, don't take it personally. And I was like, wait, music is personal to me. And I went, okay, I'm leaving. I'm not doing your gig anymore. And I, and I um, basically made it a little record with some friends and we got a, a small deal and went on tour. And then I was happy again. Wow. So it was like, uh, I felt vindicated because I had made this, you know, record of somewhat of corporate frustration and like just personal expression, and other people went, "Yeah, that's great. Let's let's put you guys on the road." So when I did that, I went, "Okay, now I realize that I don't. I can't do that a hundred percent of the time. I can't be in that world a hundred percent of the time. I won't feel good." And so now it's it's been it's a better balance now. It's a challenging world, I will say. I I. I I, I will not name names because I, I don't want to uh, ruffle some serious feathers here, but I was in a situation where, I, you know, I don't really work in the corporate world. And I did a, a gig where I was working in the corporate world for a short period of time. And there was a bit of a mix up with some personnel. And I came to the person in charge and said, I've, made a mistake here and we need to make sure we have this other person involved. And this was on an audio related thing. And he said, okay, okay, no problem. And, uh, he ended up, uh, stabbing me in the back, this person in charge and telling the, the person in question, 
a complete lie that really challenged my friendship with this person who I knew outside of this situation. Mm. And I had to defend myself and say, this is what this guy said is a total lie. It's a total mm-hmm. fabrication. And it right. did not go down like that. It went like this. And I'm telling you as my friend, right. that this is what happened. And I'm not bullshitting you. And I tell you, I, I walked away from that situation. I was like, if I ever work in a corporate situation again, I am totally going to watch my back. Like yeah. That. Yeah. You've got to be very careful. Yeah. No, I've, I, um, one of my closest friends and, and partners, yeah, has recently gone from some of this like socially conscious work to a corporate production job, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he he was blown away by the 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 change in attitude when it went from being uh, okay, we're all about this political situation, we're all trying to support these artists, we're all trying to make something great for these people. To here's the bottom line here's our deadline and you know and then the people around it who were trying to scrape their way to the top it, it was a totally different culture and he was blown away um and yeah so y- you have to be really careful to figure out what kind of environment you're working in and and it's it's a very it can be very very different i mean it's it's not un, it's not unlike stepping into a band situation you can be in a band situation where everyone respects each other and communicates well, and then you can be in a band situation, you know, and I, I've compared it to marriages too. It's like there, there can be really positive, supportive, friendly, communicative situations, and then there can be really not good communication situ- situations where people are not thinking about the group dynamic and how to communicate. So, uh, you know, I, I, how do you, don't you feel like sometimes you're playing psychologist when you're being a producer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're negotiating people's fears, people's anxieties. Um, you're 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 trying to get people to be at their most expressive. Mm-hmm. And who knows what's walking in with them on their shoulders? I'll tell you something that, that I'll share with you that I shared with with uh, another friend the other day. Uh, they were asking me about producing, and and I told them flat out. I just said, "Look, you know." At my age, at this point, I feel like I've made some grievous mistakes as far as allowing my name to be or wanting my name to be associated as a producer on certain records. And the reason is, is I don't think I really was producing in the way that I wished I could have been. And some, you know, and I'm not going to blame anybody, but decisions were made on certain records in the past where... I look back and I go, I shouldn't have let that happen. Right. I should have, I should have, if I was producing, I should have made sure that, you know, quality control was being maintained at all times. And, and some things got away from me. So now when I produce a project, I really take it seriously. And I let the artist know that I take it very seriously. So more often than not, now I'm more in a, recording engineer mixer role with just a few opinions shy of being a producer <laughs> more often than not uh-huh. than i am than i am being a producer and next I, i'm going to tell you the next project i put my name on as a producer i am really going to put my heart and soul into it as much as i possibly can yeah yeah i mean i when i'm talking about production with with students i say you know you're really becoming another 
member of the band, you know, for for a chunk of time, and they've got to treat you with respect, and you have to treat them with respect, and you have to kind of know how things are working. The and you also have to be able to throw in and say that's not going to work. At times, you have to do it judiciously, but you have to you have to put your foot down when you know it's wrong. I I, I think yeah. I think there's also the how does this process work issue, whereas how do you let everybody put in the thing that they need to as band members without derailing the process and dragging it down into the slowness of a democracy? I like that. I like that. You know, uh, and I think my discussions with Tim Palmer, uh, I don't know if you heard that podcast. What what I took away from that is that more and more, a lot of production is happening in the mixing stage. Mm-hmm. So maybe you don't, and I'm not saying you got to, you know, I would never ever suggest you be underhanded with an artist and tell them what they want to hear in the studio and then yeah. mix, mix it the way you want and blow them off. But yeah. Well, they, but can, th- sm- they can smell that. You, you, oh, yeah, sure they you, can. I, I mean, honesty is definitely on my side. If, if the more honest I can be, the happier my clients are, I think. Uh, well, and I, and I also think that if you, if, if something goes down in tracking that you don't think is the way it should happen, but it can be altered in mixing, sometimes making that alteration in mixing and approaching the, the person in question, let's say it's a drummer or whatever, a singer, you can come back at them with some distance and say, look, I know that you had this issue that was really important to you. And I just, I, I tried something that I'd like you to hear and present it to him that way. That way you're honest. You are able to execute your idea in real in, and show them, this is what it sounds like. This is what I was thinking. And a couple, and a couple things might happen. I think, I think that they may go, Oh, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever you want to do. I, 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 I'm not that passionate about it anymore or, you know, cooler heads w- will have prevailed by the time the mm-hmm. mix rolls around and they may hear and go, or they you may, know what? Yeah. Th- that's great. Okay, cool. Let's go with that. I like or it, they may hate it. I, well, I like it when they say you can do that. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a possible result of what we just did. Like that, that's an interesting one. That relationship is a fascinating one and and really fun and challenging and 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 can sometimes be hard harder than the technical stuff. You deal with a lot of artists and musicians from around the world, if mm-hmm. I'm correct. In your roles in producing in those situations, I can only imagine that language barrier, maybe not language barrier because maybe m- many people speak English. There are all kinds of barriers. I mean, you've got I do I do a lot of political music. So there's there's language, there's culture, there's race, there's uh, I, I've been in situations where every even religion comes into play where there's distrust for differences of one type or another, you know. Mm-hmm. Happily, most of the music I'm working on is really positive message stuff. So everybody ends up, you know, being family and wanting the best. For the baby, you know, sure. that, and, and if you can kind of get behind the, like, we're raising something together and we're all going to look great because the baby's going to be awesome. 
You know, wow, that's a, I have, and you're a father, I'm a father. And to hear it in that perspective, I, I've never, ever thought of it. I mean, I've thought of it as a baby before, but yeah, looking at group indecision or group conflict in the process of creation, uh-huh. when you say it like that, it makes total sense. It's like, what a great way to explain it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it, it does come definitely from the being a parent, but I, I talk about songwriters and in terms of making their songs as, as you know, me helping birthing their songs, you know, they're, they're in utero. You're a midwife. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> yep. And, and sometimes it's as messy, <laughs> but um, yeah, there's a, there's a certain amount of, I know you've got this feeling that you're trying to get out and you, you need it to come out in a way that is communicative and is lovely and, and grows into a recording that makes people feel that thing. Mm-hmm. And that transition, all those transitions from good idea to well-expressed lyrics to well-arranged song. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've said to my students, you know, good mixing comes from good arranging. If you've got a brilliant arrangement, mixing's a piece of cake. Oh, yeah. You know, and if you've got players who know when to not play and not overplay and don't fill it in with too much stuff and you're, everyone's focused on the lead vocal doing what it needs to do or whatever the band or the, the instruments need to do to get the emotion across at that moment, mm-hmm. then, then your mixing job becomes way easier, mm-hmm. you know? So, but yeah, I, I, um, I also just think it's, you know, it's, it's taking pride in their work. Like if they know that I really want for them to make something that they're really proud of, that they're really proud of for a long time, which is similar to, to raising kids. It's like you're connected to it. You're not totally in control of it, but you're trying to guide it to do its best thing. That's that's a fun way to look at it, I think. <laughs> that's my kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when you see that kid after a long time or that hear that song, you're like, oh yeah. Yeah. I remember all those wonderful things that we did to make that happen. Or I want to talk about uh, your studio in your house. Mm. Um, so I'm assuming that you do... I'm in the vocal overdue room right now, which... Uh, is about a, I don't know, 18 by 10 foot room. And then through two glass doors is my mix room, which is more like 25 by 20. You have a big house? Yeah, it's a it's a three-story um, 1895 house that was like an old farmhouse uh, in Watertown. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun old building. And, and, you know, if you break it up, you know, one of the things that I realized early on in studios is that it's really expensive to build a wall to separate your control room from your performance space. Right. So why not just do that vertically? They've already got floors that are well insulated, so you don't hear from floor to floor. Okay. So, so my control room is on my third floor, and my I do have an overdub room that's, you know, right next to it, adjacent to it. But the main recording room, which is where I do all the loud stuff, is in the basement. So I've got two floors of isolation between me and the loudest things I play. So I don't, have, I don't have to build anything. I just have to have a long snake. How do you communicate with the people in the basement? Um, everybody's got, I mean, at this point I'm using hearbacks. Okay. Um, everybody's got headphones and I've got a you know, my, at my console and everybody can hear. There have been occasional times when somebody wants to do video um, and there are lots of easy ways to do that these days. I mean, you can even do iChat, you know, 
so, but for there are bands that really are like, uh, you know, a jazz quartet. They want to see each other. They want to be in the same room. They put them all in the same room. Don't worry about it. You know, but there's the huge room in the basement that has, uh, I made the ceiling not parallel to the ground. I left the concrete raw, which is um, a natural diffuser okay. all along the walls. I, I put in a wall to isolate a heating system that wasn't parallel to any other wall. Yeah. So there's lots of space, and then there's an isolation booth for – there's a like I have a bass amp that's always on that's isolated that I can always get a bass amp sound even if I've got a DI somewhere else in the house. I've got a, basically a guitar amp room that's down there that's isolated from the other room. I've got – I'm using some old ATA cases to be guitar amp isolators so they can be in the same room with the people playing, and you don't hear those bleed into the drums. And then on the first floor, there's a, you know, a normal living space for my family, you know, and in the living room, which is, has wood floors, is a nice uh, Yamaha Grand. So I, can, I have an eight-channel snake that's in the ground, which you don't see unless you, like, move, move a chair. And I can mic up that room for acoustic recordings, uh, classical recordings, or just piano. Uh, and then you go up to the next floor, which is mostly the bedrooms of my family. And then the third floor has my control room and another overdub room. So there's, you know, about five or six recording spaces and I can have like 10 or 11 people playing their hearts out and my family can still be like, you know, having dinner. How do you uh, incorporate your studio business uh, life and people coming and going into the studio with your family? Is that a hard balance? Well, so I'll, I'll, I'll there are a few things going on. For my, my, my wife is Japanese. And so we're raising our kids bilingually. Mm-hmm. And I'm working with Senegalese artists and Malian artists and Dominican artists and people from this year. We had a, a, an Iraqi rapper and a Syrian rapper and, you know, people from all over the world. And I am absolutely sure that exposing my kids to people from all around the world and of all different cultures is the one of the best things I could do for them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, and my daughter... You know, by the time she was five, she was like, hey, daddy, can we do one of those recordings where I sing the part over and over again so I get it right and we cut it together? (laughs) I'm like, you bet, babe. You know, so they're in the studio. They're seeing through the glass people performing. You know, we lost our dogs a couple of years ago, but initially our dogs were like at the foot of people singing and playing music. And it was, and the the kitchen, which is in the middle of all this, is often the place where band meetings happen. You know, the espresso machine is constantly going. And if parents of the artists want to come in and make homemade food for everybody during the session, I'm like, come on in. Because I don't really believe in the whole antiseptic, let's make everybody feel like they're in a science lab vibe. I want to make them feel like they're safe and that they're home and they're relaxed. I want to give credit where credit is due. My wife is very patient with me and yeah. she is, she knows that this is my life pursuit and she works hard and does stuff outside of the house. And she, you know, puts up with some of this sometimes and she's, she's very understanding. So I, I have to nod my head to her, to her. Yeah. Well, is um, in some cultures to invite people into your home is, is that not like the ultimate um, form of gratitude or the ultimate way to, to welcome somebody? Oh, yeah. So 
Well, I just, we, w- just want to say one thing about that. So I went to Senegal for an early hip-hop compilation record, and I'd never been there before. Senegal's culture is the most welcoming, like, friendly language and culture. They have, like, 20 ways of saying, hey, what's up? You know, like, and and th- whenever you see somebody, they ask about your family, like, automatically. They don't, whether they've met them or not, like, it's, it's such a friend. And so they want to take you home with them and, you know, cook a meal with you and their family immediately. That's, like, the way they, they exist. And I... I feel like, you know, I learned something from them and, and love that culture mm-hmm. because of that. It is that. So, you, yeah. You yeah. sent me a very, um, it was an odd little thing, a little anecdote there at the <laughs> end of your email about uh, the Boston bombers. Um, yeah. Uh, the young Sarnayev brother that was found in the boat uh, after the Boston bombings and police were hunting him down. That was right across the street from your house, was it not? It, it, it was indeed. Um, that was a, a scary day for my family who was all here, but we were one of the closest houses to what was going on that w- didn't have the police and ATF remove people from the house. So we could actually, I can actually see, uh, the boat from my house and there were, um, there were 500 armed forces in my, you know, one block radius during that when they when they found him and my my neighbor it was my neighbor who came out of his house when they removed the band at six o'clock that night that they basically said to boston okay you can come out of your houses now he he walked out of his house i believe just to smoke a cigarette and walk around in his yard and saw that the cover of his boat had was not covering the front of his boat so he went to like see what was going on looked inside and saw him ran back inside the house and called the cops and at that moment Five minutes later, I happened to be uh, putting my little one to, to bed upstairs and looked out the window and saw, you know, a SWAT truck and a tank and a, and, and a battalion coming down one side of the street. And then I went to the other side of the house and they were coming down the other side also. So I realized that they were coming here. It wasn't like they were going somewhere. It was like, oh my gosh. And I, you know, I told my, told my wife and kids to go down into the basement, which is, you know, really well protected. You know, the, the rest of that evening was just wild. Well, and and I bring that up because you had said that you were called by, was it a New York Times reporter? Uh, no, no. The Times, so we, uh, I don't know how they do this, but I think there's automatic dial of nearby phone numbers when there's a big event. Oh. And, I th- and I think that, there, that my studio, GPS-wise, was right where, like... According to Google, my studio is actually a a hundred yards down the street, which is funny. Um, But it happens to be right where they were. The boat was. So they people were calling my studio with the idea that we were right there, and we were essentially right there, but we were down the street. Um, I mean, diagonally one house over, basically. And automatic phone calls from every major newspaper in the world started happening at like six fifteen. So. I could not put the phone down without lifting it up, without it ringing to be another newspaper. So it was like Le Monde, the Tel Aviv, London Times. Like It was just like, whoa. Um, and I wanted to call my mom because I knew she would be watching and tell her that we were okay and she knew we were all here. And uh, got a nice telephone call actually from somebody on NPR who had you know actually had our band 
on uh, All Things Considered. And he was concerned for me and not trying to get me to report for him, which was, but he knew I was right there. Um, and then I got a call from the New York Post. Oh. And, and they, I don't know if you remember, they had, they had the wrong guy on the cover the day before. They accused the wrong person and put them on the cover of the New York Post as being one of the people who had caused the bombing. I, I don't recall that, actually. Yeah, it was, it was pretty horrible. They ruined some people's lives by wow. putting them front and center on the cover. Um, and the guy had the nerve to uh, look up my business and realize that I work with um, people from all over the world and some specifically some Muslim rappers. And he was like... He, he said nothing. He didn't say hello. He didn't say I'm blah, blah, blah. He just said, I'm calling from the New York Post. We think that the bomber was trying to get to your house because he's interested in, in Muslim rap or wanted to do some tracking. And Asshole. I'm like, yeah, that's, that was, <laughs> I was like, uh, first off, fuck you. And second off, weren't you the guys who put the wrong guy on the cover yesterday? Click, you know, so I, oh. I but I couldn't, I was like, really? That's, that's how you do news? That you you Back, you, you accuse ch- first and ask later like what's the yeah that's not news yeah yeah so that was kind well, of that's my... that is fascinating and but it's interesting yeah just do you ever get any beyond that that call from the New York Post um, do you ever get any pushback uh, from anybody that you deal with uh, for dealing with other cultures no. other 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 no. religions no no I mean it especially from the kind of stuff that we're making. I mean, so I was, I was really fortunate last, last year, um, Berkeley gave me a grant to bring global hip hop to Berkeley. Cause uh, you know, not as many people have heard of it as there should, but the hip hop around the world is an amazing thing. It, you know, things like public enemy spread like wildfire around the world. And when you say things like public enemy, just to clarify, you're talking like politically based, politically yeah. charged yeah. hip hop. Speaking to truth, hip hop. Okay. You know, the, the most defs, the Talib Qualis, the dead prez, the, you know, people who are inspirational and say things, you know, and, 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 and I think that the origins of hip hop, KRS-One, pe- people who were not afraid to speak what was going on in their communities, um, I just I just spoke at a a thing about uh, Straight Outta Compton when the movie came out. Uh, a friend of mine who has a politically active church group said, "Hey, well, let's get a panel together and bring a bunch of students to go see this movie and talk about it." So he got the NAACP to get like thirty students, and this church brought a bunch of students, and the 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 theater donated the tickets, and uh, Liz Walker, who's a local anchor, is a reverend now, and. Um, Bill Banfield, who's a, another faculty member at Berkeley, we all came together in DJ Nomadics to talk about, you know, I mean, violence in America, you know, especially police on 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 black kids is just the most heart wrenching thing. You, you, we like to think that the civil rights made a huge change in our world, and there there are places where it hasn't. And talking about it for us is crucial. What I've found is that hip hop across the world is like you know, a friend of mine said, CN, uh, the hip hop is the CNN of Africa. You know, if, if something needs to be told about what's going on in a very honest way, that's not filtered through 
governments or biased news agencies or whatever, it's being said in hip hop. And so I think of global hip hop as like the folk movement of the 60s. It's this beautiful place where people from all over the world, and I mean all over the world, are speaking their mind about crucial things going on in their countries. And so when I got wind of this, probably around 2000, I got really excited about it and went to different places and connected with different people who are speaking truth to power in remote places all over the world. And it's beautiful and it's heartfelt and it's meaningful. And, you know, I love the social music for social change aspect of music in general anyway. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I don't think all music needs to be preachy. I think there's there's a place for fun and a place for expression and personal expression, but there's also a place for, you know, truth. And uh, so I just fell in love with all these people who were making this music all over the world and started recording that. And um, those people are not hostile. They're trying to be about inclusivity and, and even exposure and um, humility and, um, and humor. There are, there are people who are in a position to kind of expose what's going on and they use music, whether it be through humor or through forthrightness, you know, uh, it's an, it's an amazing thing. So I, just to be a part of those people's process of mm-hmm. is, is just a treat for me. You know, that's, that's a blast. So yeah, no, I don't, I don't, and if I did get a little negativity about it, I, I would be, you know, willing to stand up for it. So, so Berkeley wisely and, and thankfully gave me this grant and I brought, um, Omar Fendum from Syria, um, Narsi, or is known as the narcissist. Um, he's, uh, he's Iraqi. Um, part of his life grew up in Canada, but he has, you know, goes back and forth. Um, and this group Poetic Pilgrimage, which is a, a, a female Muslim duo from London um, via Jamaica. And they are all just brilliant artists first, great yeah. ambassadors of hip hop, um, all so uh, beautiful in knowing their own identity and what struggles they have and being able to portray those, but also do it in a way that's inclusive and lovely and, um, and great music. So, um, bringing those to Berkeley to do recordings with kids, performances with kids, going to classes to talk about artist identity, going to classes to talk about anything from, you know, Arab Israeli relations to talking about history, to talking about, what does it mean to be an independent musician in a world that, you know, doesn't necessarily want to pay attention to all this stuff, but there are people who want to hear it. So uh, I think it's a, it's a great time for that. You know, like that's what makes kind of the Facebook and the independent musician being able to use social media to get a word out. Um, I, I mean, I was in a rock band here. I still am in this band called Jim's Big Ego that did a, a, a very potent message during the um george bush's presidency that people totally reacted to you know we got like four million downloads in like six months because we spoke truth to something that we were upset about so i i think you know you know as a producer one of the things i want my artists to do is to tell a story with their music Mm -hmm. you know it's not just about i got a bunch of songs and this is my latest record to me that's extremely boring and hard to sell and hard for people to get interested in, unless they're already interested in you. But if for some reason they're taking up the charge to say something that they really believe in, not just because they think it's a cool thing to do, 
but because they it means something to them and they actually communicate it well, then the door's open, I think. We're running out of time, but I, I do want to ask this. In the process of working with international artists, mm-hmm. if they're singing in their native language and you don't understand that native language, and this is gonna this is gonna be me playing devil's advocate, so mm-hmm. prepare yourself. Um, I ask, what? Yeah, do you vet what they're saying? I, I mean, I, vet no, but I it's hard for me to produce if I don't know what they're saying. But I mean, do you do you say what is this song about? What are you oh, singing? Ab- absolutely, I'll have I'll translate the the beast because I mean, obviously, okay, that's 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 interesting because I mean, I can imagine you know working with international people and there's a lot of great things that come from that, but there could be the one random dude that, you know, you meet up with who is talking about something that you don't agree with or that's at odds with everything you believe in, but you, you may not even know it because it's in another language. I don't, I mean, if I'm recording people live and there's a whole lot of bands and I don't know everybody that, that could happen. Even if it gets by me at that point, by the time I'm mixing it, I'm going to say, hey, you, you speak blah, blah, blah. Will you translate this for me? And I'll, we'll go there. Absolutely. Okay. So, okay. yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think, I mean, so part of the, that's interesting you bring this up, I, being on this panel about NWAs straight out of Compton, there's a lot of negativity in that record. You know, mm-hmm. the, do you know that record? Do you know? No, I do. Yeah. Right. So, you know. F the police got a lot of a lot of reaction in a lot of different ways. And by the way, I I, I totally recommend the movie if you if you haven't seen it. Even if you don't know their story, the movie's a good movie. Um, I've, I've but, heard good things about the movie. But um, you know, I don't. Th- I, I think it's a biopic like any others. So there's glossed over stuff, and there's there's stuff that you know it was being produced by Ice Cube and Dr. Dre. So. Are they going to paint themselves badly? No. So there's stuff that they left on the cutting room floor that would have made the the movie more realistic and more of, you know, closer to a documentary. It ain't a documentary. It's a biopic. So um, there's stuff in their legacy, which is downright bad. There's misogyny. There's, there's stuff that was, you know, very negative. But on the other hand, if you... If you were there during that time period, or if you were in any inner city situation now where you're seeing the police mess with kids based on race, responding to it directly is is awesome. Like I, I, I think that that reaction, the the story in that in that movie exposes the moment when they wrote F the police and they had just been kind of brutally handled by some people who really had no business screwing with them. And they were angry, and it makes total sense. Now, is do I think everything they said in all those records is glorious? No. There's definitely some mean stuff to, to women, stuff that's demeaning. There's stuff that's I don't think is positive at all and is totally negative. Mm-hmm. But, but the basic message of people using music to express their absolute truths is awesome almost everywhere. The weird thing is that it gets manipulated too. People people take songs, political parties even do this. They'll take a song by someone who's given a message that is progressive, and they'll claim it for a conservative thing. And the and the it takes the artist standing up and saying, "No, you can't use it for that 
please don't. I don't like what you stand for, and you can't use my song for this. Sure, Ronald Reagan did that with uh, "Born in the USA" by Bruce Springsteen, and right that the 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 message of that song is ran counter to the principles right. that Reagan ran on. Right, right. So we um so Nomadic Wax, which is this awesome label that. Uh, was started by my my cousin Ben, who was the person mm-hmm. who smartly took me to Senegal and launched me into global hip hop. It was, you know, he was he was a kid just graduating from Hampshire College, and he was like, I wrote my thesis on this underground hip hop in Senegal, and I want to go there and record it. Will you help me set up a a multi track to go there? And I said sure, and we started that process. And he was like, Nah, you just produce it. Come along with me, please. So I went with him, and that was this beginning of this this label and and a bunch of uh, really fun projects. So Nomadic Wax had an event in New York, I think it was, um, where they invited Christian, Muslim, and Jewish rappers to come to a concert and perform. And pretty brave concert, when you mm-hmm. think about it. Like, let's bring people who are really um, entrenched... <sighs> In different sides of the story, and let's have them all be at one event and do their thing. Yeah. And 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 he said, you know, it was a great concert. And afterwards, he got angry letters from each of the crews saying that it was biased towards the other groups. And I was like, dude, you, you nailed it. That's like when you go to a lawyer and both parties are unhappy. It's like there was compromise. Everybody got their fair shot. Nobody felt like it was a good thing. Everybody, you know, all of the performers thought you were biased in the other direction. Well, if all three felt that way, then you probably were pretty even-handed about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this, this has been fantastic to have you on. I could talk to you all day. It's a pleasure, man. You should come out and visit sometime. Do you you come to Boston ever? You know, the last time uh, I was in Boston was in uh, 2000. Right. When I was going to Senegal. Yeah, 2000 yeah. I was uh, that's the last time I was uh, I was in New York, DC, Boston. Yeah. For work or just for no, fun? No, just for fun, hanging okay. out with my wife. Cool. All right, dude, great talking to you and uh It was a blast. Th- thanks again. All right, take care. Later. Bye. All right, another great interview down, Mr. Daniel Cantor here on the Working Class Audio podcast. What a nice guy and full of information. I hope you enjoyed that. I sure as hell did. But we're out of time, of course, so I want to make sure you know that our music is provided by Cliff Truesdell and our voiceover intro there is Chuck Smith. Additional social media and audio support is by Cole Williams. I want to thank our friends over at Gearslets.com for helping us out. And of course, thank you for listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.